Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 8. to another episode of A Father's Instruction. My name is Jason Tackett. Today we are going to be looking at the controversial topic of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that which gives us salvation. We'll be examining the attacks upon the gospel and defending it from the scriptures. I hope this will be a blessing to you today. While there is no greater message than the gospel, there is no greater controversy either. Jesus Christ himself uh, foretold this when he said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword, Matthew 10, 34. So there's nothing that divides people more than the question, what do you think of Jesus Christ? The terms of the gospel are very simple. The gospel is simply, well, the word means good news. The good news is is that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scripture. And that he was seen and experienced as the glorified Savior. And that is defined clearly in the most early of Christian hymns that was spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, verses 1 through 8 by Paul. It was that which he received when he was saved, which was only uh, a couple years after the resurrection event itself. That is what Christians were believing, and that's what they were teaching, and that's what they were propagating. That is what was called the gospel Uh, John later talked about that which his hands has handled. He had seen it. He had experienced it. So the gospel in and of itself is is a very simple thing. It's it's very clear in its declaration. Uh, However, to the unbelieving world, it's laden 
with controversy. The person of the gospel is the most challenged. The nature and character of Christ is the most maligned. The substitutionary nature of the atonement is the most attacked. The means by which people lay upon lay hold upon eternal life through Christ is the most misunderstood and misinformed. Thus, the simple message of the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and was seen. That simple message of the gospel is foolishness to many that hear it. There are three specific doctrines that are taught by the, the apostles in the New Testament, which are vehemently rejected by the religious and the irreligious world alike. The first involves the person of the gospel. That very first word that Paul says, this is the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins, rose again, and so on and so forth. Who is Christ? The Christian says that he is God incarnate. The world scoffs. The second issue that is raised is the means of the gospel. The Christian proclaims Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. They proclaim the substitutionary or the vicarious atonement for us. And the world scoffs. The third issue is the terms of the gospel. The Christian proclaims that we are saved by grace alone, through faith. The world proclaims that works as the only are the only means of salvation, and then scoffs at the idea of grace through faith alone. Let us therefore hear the arguments and be ready to give an answer for that hope that lies within us. So diving right into this, the first doctrine that I want to look at is the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. And it's attacked from many different fronts. The first great attack comes from the religious front. The apostles clearly taught, and we need to be clear on what the scriptures teach, that the word, which that is the Son, that is Christ, the word was God, was with God as distinct from the Father, but was God as sharing the very same nature. And that word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's a clear teaching of the very first 14 verses of John chapter 1. They clearly taught that God was manifest to us in the flesh. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. They believed that Christ is God. The God revealed to us the very image, the expressed image of God, the writer of Hebrews says. And they worshipped him 
Luke chapter 24, verse 52, Matthew chapter 28, verses 17. They worshipped him. He, according to the apostles, was our Emmanuel, God with us. The man Christ Jesus is the union of God and man. He is man. He is God. He is, as such, the only mediator between God and man in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. He's the only one who is able to lay hands on both God and man. So when we speak of the Incarnation, we speak of that apostolic teaching that is clearly taught in the New Testament. When this is first declared by the early Christians and even by Christ himself, who constantly was saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, I and my Father are one. Uh, the Father has life in himself. The Son has given to have life in himself. Uh, he spoke in those terms as well. Um, the first ones to oppose him were religious. The sects among Judaism. Uh, to this, they touted something that has since been called the Hebraic Principle. The sum of this doctrine is simple. They declare that the God of the scriptures is transcendent above all creation. This belief is true. I mean, it, we, we're not going to argue that God is tr transcendent, that he's above creation. Uh, we pray, our Father, which art in heaven. Uh, we, we believe in the transcendence of God, but not to the extent that they mean it. They do not find the basis of their belief in transcendence in the traditional Old Testament, the writings of Moses, the Psalms, the writings of the prophets, but they rather find their basis in priestly traditions that went all the way back to the days of Nehemiah and the return of the remnant of the Jews from Babylonian activity. In the rightful rejection of idol worship that plagued the generation of the generations rather of the Israelites that came prior to them, they began to proclaim this doctrine, the Hebraic principle. Their traditions were most closely held in the days of Christ by the Sadducees and held loosely when convenient by the Pharisees as well when they wanted to launch their own attacks upon Christ and his followers. So they argued that if God is transcendent, then God could not dwell with man. So they made, so they made this leap of logic that the transcendence of God means that God cannot dwell with man. And it's kind of akin, maybe, to put it in, in historical terms a little closer to us, kind of akin to the idea of deism. The divinity of God is separated from that of creation. The strictness of the doctrine of the Sadducees logically concluded 
that not only was the incarnation impossible, but so was the idea of the immaterial and immortal soul, or eternal life, or the resurrection. All of these things involved God intervening in creation in real ways. They believed that these ideas were attempts to mix divinity with creation. And thus, they despised the scriptures. For the scriptures in the Old Testament were constantly bringing before us a God that was personally working in creation and revealing himself in creation. They saw themselves in the days of Christ, the Sadducees specifically, they saw themselves as the practical keepers of the law that were working to correct the anthropomorphic ideas that were taught by Moses and the law. So they didn't believe Moses. Christ was constantly bringing that up, that you didn't believe Moses, and therefore you don't believe me. So they didn't believe this world that Moses was proclaiming and the prophets were proclaiming. They were trying to, well, what people are doing today, demythologize, no, I can't say that word, demythologize the scriptures. Uh, kind of like uh, the deism of, of uh, Thomas Jefferson taking a penknife, cutting out all the miracles, all the times that God had revealed himself in creation. Um, and they despised those that taught otherwise. The early Christians were despised, for instance, as pagans. They saw they, they, they saw uh, Christianity as just another pagan belief for its belief in the incarnation. It's very odd that the Romans considered Christians atheists for not believing in all the gods and the and the and sects within Judaism saw them as pagans for believing in the incarnation. But they saw them as no different as pagans who practiced witchcraft, sought spirits, and believed in gods intermingling with men. They declared that the Hebraic the Hebraic principle was the Jewish cultural distinctive and not monotheism in, in and of itself. Their chief argument for transcendence from the, it comes from the application of two doctrinal attributes of God. And these are very difficult to wrap my mind around. And it's going to be very difficult for me to try to communicate these. But I'm going to try my best. First, it is proclaimed that God is immutable, which is true. And as such, though, they go on and begin to stretch that far doctrine further, that since God is immutable, he cannot have a real and distinct relationship with the world without changing something of himself. Thus, to believe in incarnation is to believe that God is mutable. That was what they taught. The second attribute that is proclaimed is atemporality, or, or rather timelessness. They say that if God is eternal, 
than he exists beyond time, which again is true. The belief that God can dwell in time, they would go on to say, would make God temporal. If God is temporal, then God is not eternal, and therefore God cannot, they say, be incarnate. He cannot act in space and time. The greatest religious example of the Hebraic doctrine in the current world is probably Islam, is within the terms of religion. But the really, the uh, but the real direct descendant of it is materialism and naturalism. The idea is is that if there is a God, He would not and could not be known in this world because all that is in this world is the material. There is no spirit of, or God to act upon it. Uh, I'm reminded of my favorite author Dostoevsky and in the famous section of his uh, book The Brothers Karamazov that had to do with the Grand Inquisitor whereby the atheist character declared that they did not reject the idea of God. They only rejected the idea that this is God's world. And it's easy for us to see how, for the Hebraic principle, the idea of transcendence that it teaches gives birth to the idea that if God is so transcendent, then what practical need is there for the existence of God at all? It is no wonder why atheism finds a ready home among many of the Orthodox Jewish community. The Hebraic principle concludes that God cannot relate in any way to the world. Many religious scholars prefer to believe such today. Uh, it does away with the strictness of doctrine in favor of a God that is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, other. It lays the groundwork for people to claim to be spiritual without knowing or believing any specific doctrines, not holding to anything. For nothing could be infallibly revealed to be true if God is so transcendent that he has not revealed himself at all. The belief leads to this compartmentalizing of the secular away from the sacred. Sacred. It teaches us that we cannot and should not ever relate the two. It divides faith from practice because there is nothing truly revealed of God. Applying this to the gospel is that the argument is that the apostles betrayed this doctrine when they proclaim the Incarnation. However, is there good reason for us to believe in the Hebraic principle of transcendence? Going about to demythologize, I can't say that word, the Old Testament, the proponents of the Hebraic principle believed that they would destroy paganism. 
The strength of such an idea of transcendence may have been really useful for battling the paganism and pantheism and such like doctrines of that day, but it begged the question about the nature of God. Chiefly this, how do we know anything about God? How do they even know he's transcendent if it wasn't revealed in a certain way? If God is not somehow related to this world, then nothing about God can be known, not even his transcendence. The most obvious truth is that God can be known. Unless one is to conclude that there is no truth, there is no goodness, that there is no beauty, then God must be known, and the things of God must be revealed in creation. Once the idea that God can be revealed in creation is admitted, which cannot be logically denied, then the idea that God cannot relate to the creation is destroyed. This may not answer the deeper theological questions of how the spirit and how the body interact or how divinity can relate to creation, but a direct answer to those questions may not be accessible to us in this world. We do experience both the spiritual realities and both and the physical realities, and and we're justified in believing in both. And we may well need to settle for the fact that there's going to be mystery in our existence. What the existence of truth and goodness and beauty show us is that they do relate, and we know they relate. We know because we have have access to both realities. The scriptures clearly teach us that God, though transcendent, is imminent in his creation. He is the first cause, the sufficient cause. He is, he is the designer of all things. He's the upholder of all things. We don't take a breath without God. Something does not grow without God. And Paul would later say emphatically that in God we live and move and have our being. So, so as we look at these terms, immutability and timelessness, we whatever they mean, they cannot contradict what we know to be true of God. So, so what is what is this idea of immutability and temporality or timelessness mean? I mean, God is certainly immutable. He's unchanging in his basic nature. James 1.17, in him is no variableness, no shadow of turning. God is not in the process of becoming anything. He is eternally what he is. He says, I am that I am. Uh, Unlike the Mormon idea of God, that God became God, uh, no, that idea is foreign to the scriptures. His, and he's faithful in that regard in all things. Uh, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, 
the so when we think about the idea of immutable, it's it's the idea of faithfulness. What God has said, that shall He do, and that's the basic idea of, of the immutability of God. But we cannot allow a belief in 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 immutability to keep us from believing in the ability of God to affect and relate to the world that he has created. God is a being in relationship within himself. He's not this static idea. He's a dynamic idea. And that, that's part of the reason why when I don't, even though I agree with a lot of what the idea, what the doctrine says about divine simplicity, I don't like the language. God, God is dynamic. This dynamic nature allows God to come into differing relationship within the scope of his own truth and faithfulness. God is faithful. God can, though, relate differently. For instance, the Jews in the days of Ezekiel uh, believed in Ezekiel 18 that when God says the soul that sins shall die, that that, that was representing a mutable God whose ways were not equal, they said in that chapter. Nevertheless, God told them that their sin brought them into a differing relationship with him. God can relate differently based upon man's relationship to the truth of his word. Any belief in immutability must take the relational nature of God into account. There is no reason for us to believe that the immutability of God denies his relational nature. The ability for God to relate is in God's nature to do so. God, after all, he's a being in relationship. He is a personal being and a reciprocal being that experiences in his person, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, all love and all righteousness and all communication, which is why those realities exist in this world, because they existed in God. When God created, he created a world in which he was immediately related as creator, as sustainer, and that was already an extension of his very nature. The creation of the world did not cause a change in that nature, but rather an extension of it an extension of that dynamic truth of God, that God is relational. And God relating to the world does not affect his immutability. The moment we admit to a created realm, we admit that God relates to the world. The Hebraic principle presents a false view of immutability, which does not allow God to create or affect creation. It definitely is not Hebrew. It's not a Hebrew doctrine after the tradition of Abraham and Moses and David, 
who all believed and wrote of a God that came down, of a God that revealed himself, a God that did wonders. Our belief in the unchanging nature and faithfulness of God must allow for God to create and come into differing relationships with his created order. That brings us in the more tricky territory, metaphysically speaking. God, who is beyond space and time, is considered to be timeless and atemporal. And that's true. He is eternal. He alone inhabits eternity. He is before all things. He's the final cause of all things. He is the great I Am. Now, the Hebraic principle questions, how can the timeless act within time? If God acts within time, they say he is temporal. Now, there is nothing, and I don't feel myself even qualified to speak of the nature of time. It hurts my head to think about it, to be honest with you. But there's nothing in the teaching of the creation to lead one to believe that God ceases to be eternal by relating to the temporal. Since we already know that God does relate to creation, the question is not how a timeless God can act in a temporal world. We already know that he can and does. The question is why. And I think by answering the why, we touch on an answer to the question of the how. The question of the how is mysterious and beyond our comprehension, but we touch on it. There is nothing in the eternality of God that prevents him from acting in a temporal world. The leap from timeless to temporal is a chasm that seemingly cannot be crossed. It is such a change that it challenges the immutability of the nature of God itself, as, they, as, as we already kind of touched on. It causes us to have to think of God in a different light. And I'm going to throw out an idea of God that I've pondered and and. I rarely hear discussed humility was this not what the psalmist asked when he said what is man that thou art mindful of him the son of man that you visit him the Hebraic principle is true in this one instant God so transcends all things that God must humble himself in order to relate to the world in any way. I love how the psalmist began Psalm 40. The Lord inclined unto me. And as I'm reading that, I'm getting this picture of, of a father stooping down to the level of the two-year-old child to help them. The stooping there is this idea of humility. 
So there's this forgotten attribute of God that is hard to find in the pages of theology. The humility of God. God is eternally submitted within himself in this reciprocal love and meekness one to another in the persons of God. Perfect love and perfect righteousness being experienced eternally in the persons of God. Christ was the expressed image of those eternal truths. When God created all things, this humility was expressed in terms of revelation. When God, or the psalmist again, Psalm 113 verse 6 says, God humbles himself to behold the things in heaven. Just relating in any way is an act of humility with God. The moment God said, let there be light, he began making himself known in creation. He was humbling himself by saying this, by saying that thing. He introduced something in his nature, in his experience, that was humbling. The experience of temporality. God stooped down to us in space and time. Each time he revealed something of himself. The incarnation is nothing more than just like it's an extension of his being a being in relationship. It's an extension of the humility of his, of his being. It's nothing more than an expression of that that's always been in the nature of God. Christ humbled himself and took upon himself in the, form, the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, was obedient. Christ was made poor, though he was rich in his nature. This is the timeless stooping to act in temporality. And it's a powerful expression of the humility and it's grounds for us to worship the eternal God that made himself known to us in such a way. God came to where we are and even died for us. And at this point, an effort to deny the incarnation, the unbeliever will start touting the law of non-contradiction. So I do want to say something about this. They would deny it when they want to deny the existence of anything knowable or true, but but, but uh, they'll hypocritically use logic when it's good for them. They, they say it's impossible that Christ can be both human and non-human at the same time and at the same relationship or in the same relationship. If so, Christ would be both mortal and not mortal. Is that what we're teaching when we're teaching the Incarnation? How could he be both timeless and temporal at the same time? And setting aside the faultiness of the Hebraic principle, let's face this. <coughs> Does the incarnation present with us with a logical fallacy? When we, first, we must first concede that the Bible declares Christ to be God. 
you know, if you're not willing to admit that, then, then, then you must deny much of the scripture. Uh, the Messiah was to be worshipped, and thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. The Bible also declares that Jesus is a man. He was made flesh. He dwelt among us. He was truly God. He was truly man. In him is humanity, and in him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9 The humanity of Jesus Christ was distinct. The human, the human nature was not divine, so we are not... We, we are not saying that it is. Consider what the Bible does not say. The Bible does not say that Christ was two persons. One which was God and one which was man. It does not say that he was 100% God and 100% man. That math doesn't work out like that. What it does say is that he was authentically were truly human, and yet authentically and truly God. It does not say that he was a hybrid of God nature and human nature, but he was one single divine person that possessed both distinct natures. He, in the center of his consciousness, was aware of both natures. He was aware of the divinity of his nature and to the humanity of it. The person of Christ is the unique Son of God who existed from all eternity. That person, remaining God, humbled himself and took upon himself or added to himself human nature. There's no logical unsoundness in that position. We have already shown that it is logical to believe in a God that can and does relate to the world. To believe that God, by his own power and will, can choose to mingle his nature with that of humanity remains sound, though it remains profoundly mysterious. What of the texts seem to indicate that Christ lacked some of those things that were particular to the nature of God. It is certain that Jesus declared his divinity. He claimed to be able to forgive sins, to know all men. He claimed to be omnipresent. He says, no man ascends up to heaven, but the Son of Man which is in heaven uh, his divinity is clearly proclaimed by the apostles. The other side of the coin was he was made flesh. He was limited into a body. Christ was in time, in his human nature. He was in space, supposed to being above it. He was weak, as opposed to to being almighty. Christ declared that there were even things that he did not know in the state of his humiliation, in the state of his passion. He did not know the time of the second coming in Mark 13, 32. 
just as it is necessary for God to limit himself to something less than his nature in order to relate to this world, so Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God, must allow himself to be limited in order to be made flesh. There is no damage done to the attributes of God if the person of God voluntarily sets that glory aside. Such a belief does not require us to buy into some kind of process theology, this idea that God is essentially temporal and developing through time, or hold to this Hebraic principle that allows no relationship between God and the world. It only requires us to see the humility of God's nature and that perfect expression in Christ. We learn that no man has seen God at any time. That's transcendence. But the only begotten Son hath declared him. That's eminence. John 1.18 God in Christ did not renounce his divinity but did set it aside in part in order to taste death for us. That does not mean that the attributes of God are accidental, but they are indeed essential to his nature. God, by his own will, freely chose to not exercise the fullness of his power. He never stopped being God or possessing those attributes. He freely, by his own will, decided to set aside his omniscience for a time. He did not deify humanity. He stooped down to it. He experienced it that he may reconcile it with God. The theological term that's been adopted is this idea of kenosis, in Philippians 2, he emptied himself, made himself of no reputation. It may just as well, instead of kenosis, be called the, per, the humility of God expressed. The incarnation and the subsequent death of the cross, Christ perfectly expressed for us what existed in God from all eternity. A humble and reciprocal love a love that vaunts not itself, a love that is not puffed up. When we read of the baby in the manger or the son not knowing the time of the end, we see that glory which Christ was willing by his own power to set aside for a time until he took it back up again at the resurrection, according to John 17.5. It is ground for worship when we see how far he stooped down to us. The gospel hinges on the truth of the incarnation. We must remember that the nature which Christ took upon himself was the nature which was created in his image in the very beginning. Human nature already resembled or mirrored in some way in a limited way, in a super limited way, the nature of God. God assumed that limited nature. There is a consistency between human nature and divine nature already. There, there would be an absurdity if we 
claimed that God took upon the nature, a nature that had no correlation to him, like a tree or a fish. However, there is nothing absurd about the incarnation. The image of God was marred by sin, and that's what Christ stepped into. He came, Romans 8, 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He stepped into a nature that was alienated and opposed to him. He came into a nature that was under the curse, was unable to be reconciled to God without him. He was not a sinner, but he did enter into a world of sin where the curse of that sin was known and experienced. It's an amazing truth to me when I think about it. For the creator of all things, in whose likeness we are created, to be made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Forever, we would be able to wrangle about the how of the incarnation. The why of the incarnation is the greater question. Because it meets our greatest need. As much as man wants to erase sin, it still screams out in all of its consequences, we need a Savior. The Savior had to come to us from God, or it could never lead us back to God. The question of the incarnation is not whether it is possible, but surely it's whether it is true. What proof is there that the incarnation happened? Well, Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The greatest proof of the incarnation lies in Christ who came into the world declaring that he was the very Son of God, the very nature of God. He did miracles and received worship then he died on a cross and was buried and was declared to be alive forevermore, risen from the grave. He was seen and fellowship with by many and witnessed and preached that he was risen and that salvation could be found on him. A historic event forever changed the world. The resurrection of Christ is at the crossroads of history and declares that God has visited humanity. Our salvation is found in a person who is the unique Son of God manifest to us in the flesh. He was finally and convincingly declared to be so by the resurrection. So that's the person of the gospel, Christ. And now the means of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. This opens up the unique truth of the gospel that it is substitutionary. This is unique to biblical Christianity alone and it's hated for that exact reason. It's beauty and it's love and it's grace. It is considered by the enemies of Christianity to be an affront to justice for the sinner to go free and for the just to die. 
Justice demands that one that does the wrong suffers the punishment. Justice demands an eye for an eye. If the wages of sin is death and I have sinned, I must die. How can someone die for me? Further, if God is able to forgive sins, why does he not just forgive sins? Why does Christ have to die in order to allow him to forgive sins? To the new atheist, the idea of the atonement is an immoral act of God demanding human sacrifice. They mock it like by calling it the divine child abuse because they fail to see the underlying issues of sin and judgment. The attempts to logically argue against the substitutionary atonement ignore the principles of Christianity in favor of other worldviews, such as atheism. And atheism will dismiss the idea of sin altogether, then there's no reason for any debt to be paid for sin uh, in a materialistic scheme. The rapist has not sinned when he rapes. He just simply responding to natural laws of cause and effect and the chemical reactions in his brain. Since he has not sinned, he cannot be judged. And the idea that he can be judged, that anybody can be judged in his place, is ridiculous in the scheme of atheism. But we're not judging Christianity by the scheme of atheism. We judge it by its own scheme. Uh, the idea of atheism is already morally bankrupt. Uh, so any anything they have to say about the vicarious or substitutionary atonement is of no consequence. Others will adopt the pantheistic scheme. They consider the atonement to be an insult to the law of karma. They prefer a scheme which champions an impersonal God and the law of karma, which demands that each person pay for their own decisions by an endless cycle of suffering and rebirths. What evil caused that cycle to begin, we're never told. But the impersonal law of karma is said to be supreme, and the idea that one can suffer for another breaks what they consider to be that immutable law. The reliance on impersonal law as a basis for all reality does nothing to explain metaphysical questions or existential realities of consciousness and morality and beauty, none of which can be the product of the impersonal. So we're not, we don't judge Christianity by the scheme of pantheism. The question of reduce is to whether the atonement is coherent within its own scheme. We have good reason to reject pantheism. We have good reason to reject atheism in all their forms. And therefore, why adopt their arguments or their views of reality and argue against the atonement? The Christian idea of the atonement must rise and fall in its own scheme. The doctrine of the atonement begins with or is highlighted by three realities. The first reality is the moral reality of sin. The thing that needs to be atoned. The reality of sin is central to the Christian worldview. 
and finds its basis in all honest moral reasoning and experience. It is only those who wish to deny its reality who mock the atonement. All who admit to its reality long for the atonement. The awakened sinner wants to be cleansed and made free from their sin. The awakened sinner longs for a ground upon which they may be forgiven and that they may attain mercy. Sin has corrupted every part of our lives and there is no hope of us atoning for ourselves. If there was no atonement, then one of the greatest longings in the human spirit could never be satisfied. If there is no water to answer to the, long, to the longing of thirst, there must be an atonement. Or if there is water to answer to the longing of thirst, there must be an atonement to answer to the need and reality of the conscience. Sin has to be answered. The next essential concept of the, of the atonement is the concept of judgment. We know in our hearts and in our conscience that sin cannot simply be ignored. Those who make light of sin do not understand this. Dostoevsky, for instance, was careful in the crafting of his great work, Crime and Punishment, to speak of the absolute need of punishment. It's a need. The murderer must face judgment. It must be meted out. If we have done wrong, we know that we must be judged. A world without judgment isn't a world without morality. Every one of us must give an account of ourselves to God. Sin is forever connected with a penalty. The day you eat thereof, ye shall surely die. This penalty brings us closer to a definition of the, the atonement itself. The atonement is the payment of a penalty, a ransom, in the sense of a payment of a just fine. It is the full and complete answer of the demand of justice. The atonement is not a ransom paid to Satan, but it is a ransom paid to God against whom all sin is committed. When you sin, you transgress against God. The way of salvation is the way of justice. When we picture the cross of Christ, we can ride over it. Judgment. The atheist mocks and asks, If God wanted to forgive, then why doesn't he just forgive? Why does he demand that his son must die? Such a question destroys the justness and holiness of God. For a judge to simply pardon a murderer without demanding justice is a great mockery. We want to live in a world of justice. We long for it just as we long for the atonement and for forgiveness. We would rightly reject a God that winks at the sinner and at sin. Justice demands death and that is what the gospel provided. It is important to note at this point that Christ did not simply stand as an innocent person dying to let the guilty go free. 
when he stood in when he stood in the stead of sinners he took all the sin and all of the guilt of the sin upon upon himself He took all the guilt of the sin upon himself. Sorry, the phone's ringing. So he wasn't just standing as an innocent person dying for the guilty. When he stood for us, in that moment he stood as guilty. He was sinless, but 1 Corinthians 5.21, he was made to be sin for us. The cross was an act of pure justness on the part of God. He stood up and he pled guilty for us. He took our guilt. He took our shame. And he stood as our covenant head, our true representative, and died for our sin, that the wrath of God, the justness of God, may be satisfied. And that brings us to a third concept. And that's the concept of mercy. God is a God of mercy, ready to forgive, as the psalmist said. For the mercy of God to answer the holiness of God, the greatest of wisdom was needed to manifest itself. Thus we have Christ. He is the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. This becomes a theme in Revelation itself. Substitutionary atonement is the basis of Old Testament revelation. God covered the shame of man in the garden by shedding blood to make coats of skin. God accepted Abel because he brought a substitute, a lamb. It was the blood of a lamb on the doorposts in Egypt that saved them as judgment passed over. It was the blood of the goat on the Day of Atonement that was sprinkled on the mercy seat and on and on. It was a ram caught in a thicket that took the place of Isaac upon the altar with the promise that God would one day provide himself as a lamb. All of the Old Testament economy expected substitution. The first promise was in Genesis 3.15 that Christ would be bruised to destroy the works of the devil. The declaration of the prophets were that God would lay on the Messiah the sins of us all and that by his bruising, God would be satisfied or pleased in Isaiah 53. Therefore, when John the Baptist pointed his finger at Christ and says, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, it was already bolstered by Old Testament expectations. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ himself declared that he was a ransom for many. The early church and the apostles declared over and over their belief that Christ was made our sin, that we may be made his righteousness. 
that he died the just for the unjust. The church believed universally that Christ died for them. He offered himself for our sin. The justice of God demanded our death, and he did not simply excuse it. He died for us. He was offered unto us, up for us, unto God. This is not divine child abuse, but God giving of himself that we may be the recipients of his mercy and grace. This is not an immoral human sacrifice, but the greatest act of love, Christ giving himself for those whom he loves. True altruism is God himself standing in the way of the bullet, jumping on the grenade for us. More than that, he took our guilt. He took our just punishment. And now we can freely live out his righteousness. So turning from the person of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, and the means of the gospel, which is substitutionary, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. The last thing I want to kind of zero in on is the terms of the gospel. And what's important about this is we understand the definition of the gospel as defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the very first eight verses. There is a definite silence in it about human effort. It's interesting what the gospel is not in that definition. And it excludes human effort. It excludes human work. The only thing that we contribute to the gospel is the sins which made the gospel necessary. The gospel is defined in such a way that it's all about what Christ accomplished on behalf of the sinner and finished by virtue of his, of his resurrection. And therefore, the terms of the gospel is that it is by grace through faith. And salvation in in contemporary brands of Christianity have emphasized the opposite of that idea. Salvation in the modern sense is always the result of some kind of human effort, whether it's the carefully choreographed, and I'm not even saying that word correctly, choreographed presentation of Christianity on the part of the church or the minister, or whether it's the effort of the sinner, it all comes back to a basis of works and not solas gratis, or the grace alone. And that idea has been utterly forsaken. Uh, the, the idea that, that the presentation of the gospel itself is a means of, uh, or the carefully choreographed presentation thereof is what works salvation uh, finds its origins going back to figures like Charles Finney and and since then Christian ministries have sought to create those right 
emotional conditions. Uh, modern churches will have the lights and the smoke and the soft music, and somehow we believe that that in and of itself is, is becomes a method of working salvation. Uh, the Bible clearly tells us that though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished. A, a group of sinners cannot do what one sinner cannot do for themselves. Uh, one leaky bucket cannot be fixed by several leaky buckets being put together. And we, we what we've ended up with this ideology is this carefully packaged product of Christianity that we labor over to bring people to Christ. And the end result is that the gospel becomes a product. We, cre we have these seeker-friendly environments that we believe that we're creating that are affecting salvation. And that's just as when it says salvation is not of works, it takes in those ideas as well. Uh, we indeed do sow the word. We do indeed water, but the increase in salvation itself is always going to come from God. The altars of the Old Testament in Exodus twenty twenty five are always to be uh, built by whole stones in which no tool had been used. And we've sadly come to believe that we can smooth the stones of the gospel out by our own craft to make the gospel more acceptable. Uh, to the early Christians, the need to be all things to all people was, was, it was a reality. Uh, Paul said, I have become all things to all men that I might win some. Uh, but it never came at the sacrifice of just giving the clear presentation of the gospel because the gospel is what saves. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The common theme of the modern Christian uh, e uh, evangelical effort is that we are to work to make the message palatable and we often do that at the sacrifice of proclaiming the clear truths of the gospel in fear of giving some kind of offense. And I like what others have said. We, we don't have to defend the lion. We just let the lion out of the cage. Uh, that, that, that is what affects salvation. But there, there is a pride that comes with such an idea. We come to think that we are responsible. We are responsible for bringing men to salvation. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, it mirrors the Roman Catholic heresy that the church is somehow the dispenser, the indispensable dispenser of grace. And yes, we have a part in preaching and proclaiming the gospel and showing the gospel, but the, dispense, the dispensing of grace alone is God. It's not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, saith the Lord, Zechariah 4, 6. So salvation does not come to anyone because of our evangelical prowess. The gospel is not a product to be pushed with high power sales techniques and, and depending on those sales techniques uh, for its success. The gospel is a power 
of salvation if it is clearly proclaimed. Now the latter issue is this idea that somehow the sinner himself affects by what he does or what he keeps on doing their own salvation is as old as time itself. The religion of Cain was to bring the fruit of his own labor and and, and seek acceptance from God on that basis. Uh, even Adam, his father, covered himself with his own fig leaves and sewed them together himself to cover the shame of his sin, and it never was sufficient without the shedding of blood for that shame to be covered. So it's the default position of all religion to prescribe some duty or some prohibition or some process by which the hearer can keep in order to find acceptance with God. It it just seems to be built into human nature, and the gospel speaks contrary to human nature. Uh, It's necessary now to argue, it's not necessary, rather, to argue against all the religions of the world. Uh, I'm really kind of going to zero in on on the argument of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Most of workspace salvation within the Christian scheme seems to find its germs in in the Roman Catholic ideology. All advocates of work-based salvation I kind of borrow from that. This idea that salvation must be dispensed through the means of the church and the obedience of the parishioners to those means. They rely on extra-biblical traditions to boast of the means of those uh, ways of salvation, or uh, means of grace, rather. But, but that's not really the issue and how they came up with it. It's more of how they defend it. Since the Reformation in the 16th century, they have argued vehemently against the Protestant return to the scriptural declaration that salvation is truly by grace through faith alone and not of works. And reliance on the traditions that contradicted the scriptures are they're ineffectual. So they have couched their arguments also in, in the scriptures as well. And I want to just take a minute to kind of look at those. Their first argument is a semantical argument. There's a straw man argument that states salvation is by faith alone. And the actual position of the Christian is not that salvation is by faith alone. It is that it is by grace through faith alone without works contributing to it. Once they have reduced the doctrine to the term faith alone, they will cleverly go forth and and correctly point out that the only time the Bible uses the term faith alone is in the book of James. And this is how it reads in James, James 2.24. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. The straw man is this so is this idea of faith only. The gospel is what saves, and the gospel alone is what saves. Our faith 
has a definite object, and that is Christ and his finished work for us. We do not add to that. We do not, as Paul says, frustrate the gospel of grace. It excludes works as a means of attaining it. The gospel is grace, and grace is unmerited. Grace, by its nature, excludes any act of the penitent by which they can gain favor. Salvation, according to Paul in Romans 11.6, is either by grace or by works. It cannot be both. It can't, because once you introduce works for attaining it, you have destroyed the idea that it is unmerited. The scriptures proclaim that it is by grace alone and not of works. The effort of some to uh, differentiate from the works of the law and the works of the church is farcical and obvious. that it's a failed attempt to enter works into that matter of salvation. Uh, Galatians 2.16 says that no one is justified by the works of the flesh. The message of the Christian is that salvation is by grace alone. It cannot be earned or gained by doing deserving works. Faith is just a mechanism that grasps grace. We hear the gospel, and by faith, we trust the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith without works of any merit at all, simply on what Christ accomplished. Therefore, whatever they believe James to be speaking of, James cannot be contradicting a fact that is essential to the gospel. What James was teaching was that which was clearly taught throughout the New Testament. The grace that saves is a grace that changes. We are new creatures in Christ, Paul says. Grace, when received by faith, changes the ones that received it. Faith in Christ is more than just this intellectual sin. Okay, yeah, I believe that kind of kind of ideology or uh, as some would say like a getting a flu shot and it and that's it. It, it it's not just just intellectual assent it's not repeating words or going through some religious motion whosoever believes has eternal life faith alone can grasp grace that alone can save and when saved you are changed by it They want to say that whosoever obeys or whosoever works will gain eternal life. James doesn't say anything of that sort. James gave an example of faith being brought to its fruition in obedience. Abraham believed God in chapter 15 of Genesis, and God counted him righteous. But the example given by James in the same context of James 2 was in was many years later in Genesis 22 when when he offered Isaac upon the altar. It's because he believed God and was already counted righteous that that faith continued to manifest itself. Uh, we believe 
the way we truly behave, or rather, let me say it the other way around. We behave the way we truly believe. If we believe God, it is manifest in our works. And how do we know that we have faith? We have it by examining our fruit. That's the only way we have to know that anyone is saved is by looking at the fruit of their lives. So, so grace is the root, works are the fruit, and that's what James was attempting to highlight in his book. Works are the evidence that true faith exists. This is the sense in which the Christian perseveres. Christ taught, for instance, he that endures to the end shall be saved. Now, setting aside what the term saved in that context may mean and, and whether or not there's any eschatological significance to the statement itself with setting that aside, what does it mean he that endures to the end shall be saved? Is that meaning that your effort of enduring to the end, those works that you do in enduring to the end are what saves you? No, it's it's Christ that saves you. He that began a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Christ. Salvation is a work done wholly by Christ from, from beginning to end. So when you're looking at texts like that, we don't read works into salvation. We read works as evidence of salvation. He that endures to the end is descriptive of those who were saved. It is not prescriptive on how they are saved. The matter of enduring to the end is, is just that. This fact was taught by John when he says, If they were of us, they would have continued with us. But since they have not continued, it's evidence that they were not of us. And that's why Jesus says, you're workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Um, that, that was uh, John's quote was from 1 John 2, 9. They were not of us, or else they would have continued with us. When Christ says that the one that believes and is baptized shall be saved, that does not mean that by our effort of being baptized we are saved. It just means that that's descriptive. That obedient step of of Getting baptized is descriptive of what disciples do. If you believe Christ and if you are truly made his disciple by being saved, then naturally you will follow him. And, and it, is, it is that difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive that is always at the heart of many of these debates. So setting aside the semantical argument uh, quickly uh, there's the theological argument um, that grace that salvation is by works and grace um, it's this false teaching that salvation in the terms of justification and what I mean by salvation here is being justified once and for all before God because of what Christ has done it is to reduce that that to a process and certainly the teacher the the scriptures teach rather 
that there is a process of growth in a Christian life. They grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. It does teach us progress. The path of the just is as a shining light, shining more and more unto the perfect day. There is a progression in the life of the Christian. We go from babes in Christ, desiring the sincere milk, to children, to young men, to elders in 1 John chapter 2. However, such progression does not speak of our justification before God. Only the progression of our obedience as true disciples. Our progression in the faith, not that which secures us as being of the faith. So it's foolish to apply it to justification. We are justified freely by Christ alone. We are justified perfectly and completely, having being justified by once and for all by faith, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. To them, though, justification is never perfect, it's never complete, and it always depends on the next step of obedience and constantly stands in dependence of that next act. And in such a scheme, one can never know if they are saved. No one can never know. Rather, they can only hope that they are saved. So all the declarations of security are rendered nonsense. They shall never perish. These things are all written unto you that ye may know that ye have eternal life. They're all, they're all rendered nonsense. They have passed from death to life. They shall not come into condemnation. All those become meaningless. Uh, they can never believe that Christ will ever will never leave them or forsake them. They can never rest secure in that. They cannot even rest secure in the process, which is clearly something that Christ does from beginning to end. He that begins a good work shall perform it. Or Romans chapter chapter 8 that says, those that are justified shall be glorified. Uh, they cannot do what the scriptures proclaim that they can do. No and have full assurance that they have eternal life. Whatever scriptures they believe that they have that prove the process, the salvation is a process, come at the cost of denying those clear teachings of scripture. They declare that one must take certain steps, but try to deny that they are attempting to earn favor by taking those steps, or that they are essentially relying on those steps themselves. They believe in Christianity instead of believing in Christ. That's a terrible but a distinction, but sadly many are in that. They believe in a Christian, live in a Christian life, and being part of a Christian community, but do not, do not fully rest in Christ. They falsely equate this as abiding in Christ. They do not realize that the abiding in Christ has everything to do with bearing fruit for and through Christ and not with justification. They see themselves as a church, as dispensers of grace to those who take those steps. They, by their works, bestow grace on those who come by their works. 
they say one must be baptized and then one must be confirmed and one must have holy orders and then one must continually take the mass and then one must continually confess their sins and then one must have the last rites and then after it's all said and done one must pay for the remainder of their sins by their own ability to suffer through purgatory and it goes on and on and you can add other things one must do this one must do that one must do this this and that and it and it always is dependent upon completing some process instead of resting securely in christ protestant congregations have adopted some of those very same ideas by varying names you must be baptized you must endure to the end you must speak in tongues you must forgive people you must do all these things which are all descriptions of what of what one does in christ but not how one attains to christ it's always part of this incomplete process in this ideology christ spoke of one passing from death to life christ spoke of a new birth an event that Paul later says is becoming a new creature and old things passing away. That is what they are missing. In addition, Peter spoke of the new birth as something that was already accomplished, uh, uh, already done, a reality already in the Christian life in 1 Peter 1, 2, 23, being born again of the incorruptible word. So this new birth is affected by believing upon Christ. We are children of God by faith in Christ. Galatians 3.26 To sum it all up, the theological and semantical arguments of those who want to teach salvation by works find no scriptural support. The scriptures teach plainly that there is an experience of the new birth that occurs, which brings a man finally from death to life. From that moment, the Christian is a new creature and declared righteous by the eternal God through Christ. This is based solely on grace without works of the flesh or works of the law. We attain this new birth simply by believing or rather trusting in the finished work of Christ in the gospel. Works should and do follow all who are of faith. The works are proof or fruit of the faith, but not the ground or root of it. Our salvation is through Christ alone based on his substitutionary sacrifice alone, grasped by faith alone without works. As Paul taught, God hath made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The only means of us being made righteous is through Christ being made our sin in our stead. I hope that somehow this study today has 
been a blessing to you as we grasp the understanding of the power of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and was seen. I hope this is encouraging you in some way to trust in that gospel alone. Until next time, Lord bless.